Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Please note, this podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week's episode was recorded in January of this year when I spoke with Detective Chief Inspector Nick Plummer about his work leading the Missing Exploited Traffic Team and the Youth Offending Team for Hampshire Constabulary. I'm Nick Plummer, I'm a Detective Chief Inspector with Hampshire Police. Uh, my current role is leading a team within the Public Protection Department that deals with the missing, exploited and trafficked children and youth offending. So when you say children, just because I think the ages are important, just to be clear, children are in the age bracket of... So for my team, up to 18 years old, but we, we do have, and maybe we can come back to it later, we have those ongoing conversations about what that means when a young person reaches the age of 18 okay because uh the social care footprint kind of sometimes fades away they move into the adult social care police officers in the criminal justice system consider them adults at that point and it, it becomes maybe a bit clearer to some police officers but less clear to the young person because they've had a lot of support around them up until that time and then it suddenly kind of changes yeah so it's up until 18 but can be as young as from birth we we can become involved with young people below the age of 10 but generally uh, so if they were a missing person or they were a vulnerable person it would be at, below the age of 10 mm. if they're involved in criminal activity they would have to be over the age of 10 because that's the criminal age of responsibility yes. in this country so could you give us an example of the types of different crimes uh so it, it cuts across all types of crime i'm to, sorry to be vague but to give you a yeah. few examples but it might involve um an adverse influence encouraging young people to go shoplifting um, at the at one end of the scale. Um, it may well involve somebody encouraging young people to move drugs from one part of the city to another part of the city. And would that be with county lines that we hear a lot about? So it might be one of the offshoots of county lines. So county lines is uh, the mechanism of an oversupply of drugs in one area, the the controller of those drugs wanting to export them to where the demand is. And they do that by sending them down to the counties, hence it's called county lines, and then controlling that through mobile telephones so they can maintain the control in the big city and have the distribution kind of outside of their immediate vicinity. But this is, and it probably is an offshoot of that, so you then get the local networks that then have to kind of distribute or move those drugs around locally. 
The other thing young people will be exploited for is sexual activity. Usually the criminal exploitation focuses on young males and we see on young males as the victims. As the victims, yes. Um, and sexual exploitation focuses on young females, usually about the age of 15. And you'll see them moved around the county. Sometimes there'll be some level of kind of a gift, like vodka or um, cigarettes or something that kind of entices them into that kind of relationship with the exploiter. They'll often be moved from one, one part of a city to another or maybe even between two cities in order to, I guess, kind of take them outside of their own kind of comfort zone of where they know and what they feel comfortable with. And they'll be given those gifts in order to kind of build that relationship with the exploiter. It might start with something that is equally sinister, but at low level around a young person showing parts of their body for photographs in order for, to get cigarettes in return. Yeah. Um, and at the far end, it might be um, cocaine or kind of class A drugs that they get in return for some sexual act. Right. And that's the same for the young girls as well as the young boys. Yeah. So the young boys are are more often involved in criminal exploitation and the intelligence picture gives us a, an indication of their level of involvement. We, we don't often get information about their level of involvement with um, sexual exploitation. Professionals will tell us, so social care, third sector charities like St Giles Trust that we work with from London will tell us about the journey of an exploited child, male or female, and how actually it will cut across both types of exploitation. We're just much less cited on the sexual exploitation of young males because of the taboo subject around that and the fact that they won't speak to professionals or speak to their peers or friends. It would mean the young males would perform a sexual act uh, maybe with a, a, a girl or somebody else around their kind of same age, it would be videoed and create effectively illegal material. Or it might be just pictures of them kind of when they're drunk or something in a compromising position that can then be used as leverage to blackmail them right. is how it, it plays out. Okay. Very rarely we have occasions where uh, young males are drawn into those very usually small but networks of um, exploiters that predominantly are just looking to exploit them sexually around um, passing young boys between between males right. male, male perpetrators it's normally to do with power control and blackmail and a lever over that young person to get them to do further things for them right and i suppose then the missing aspect of the children often can be part of that because they might be missing because they've been taken into that world yep so missing is we always consider missing a a huge uh, warning sign in relation to the the lived experience of the young person so what they're actually going through at that time it's a big indicator of something not being quite right um it's it's normally a, a symptom of some kind of unhappiness within the home house or maybe a draw that's pulling them away to to something else so a balance between the two that push and pull factor it's something that is usually quite easy to measure because we do get reports either from social care or from parents or foster parents about what's happening so we can kind of establish the pattern around that and if we've got serious concerns about their well-being which is normally at the a medium or high risk if they go missing then we can put a lot of policing effort into finding them and that helps us build that information and intelligence picture about what they're doing, who they're spending time with and who might be those exploiters or the adverse influences drawing them away from their home. And is this a sort of growing problem? Have you seen, so say in the last 10 years or however long you've been in charge and sort of of this type of crime, is it going up, going down, is it shifting? So it's constantly evolving. It's really hard to put any kind of 
substance around the numbers and the figures, generally missing episodes are decreasing. Um, but that might be because actually the core of those missing episodes that we saw maybe 15, 20 years ago don't play out now because maybe the demographic of young people, they don't go missing from home because they don't go down the park and not come home, whereas if they used to. So maybe the residual core of those that we now get reported as missing to us are those children that we are really worried about because it's not they're just the adolescent who's disobeying parental instructions. So we've generally seen a downward trend in the amount of missing children. The amount of exploitation, we are seeing a steady decrease in the amount of sexual exploitation. And I don't think this is a sign of less crime. It might be just changes in the reporting mechanisms. It might be a reflection of the fact that children are being more careful online now after several years of information around around what they should and shouldn't do and who they should and shouldn't engage with online um, and we see a gradual increase in the amount of criminal exploitation probably because we've although that has been around since Dickensian times we've never really kind of understood it as a bunch of professionals from a policing perspective um, we've always thought of young people involved in crime as criminal adolescents that we need to get a grip of and they need to stop their behavior we've never thought beyond that problem and thought who's leading them into that and how can we stop those adverse influences around them because mm, I was going to ask actually I can imagine you know but I want you to paint a picture of the perpetrators and where they might be mm the reasons they're doing it, which I can imagine, but I don't want to yeah, sure. presume. So, it, it, yeah, and it is easy to imagine. It is what you think it would be. So devious, selfish, self-centred, manipulative, excellent communicators, all of the right tools to push the right buttons with the young person to encourage them. Yeah, they're not just chances. They're not just opportunistic. No, no, it's it's not Small kind sinister. of 30 years ago with the, the paedophile in the Mac in the park. It's people that are media savvy. They know how to um, encourage or praise a young person. That's the right word. Yeah, to kind I suppose of grooming them. Grooming them. And there's obviously some sinister underlying intent that they want. Um, there's a power imbalance, which is the integral part of exploitation. And they obviously want to achieve something. And that is to the benefit of them as the exploiter. And that might be sexual gratification. It might be financial. It might just be the power over the young person uh, and that kind of influence and control that they have and the, the feeling that they get of control from that. Mm. Age-wise, it's probably surprisingly tends to be kind of th those late teens into the early 20s. That's much younger than I thought. Yes, yeah. And, and we think about that and it probably comes down to the fact that actually children are fairly... Most children are fairly good at assessing risks and knowing and think and they want to feel like they're in control. Mm. And that's part of the journey of the exploiter is to convince the child that actually they're in control and they're part of this decision making process. It's much harder to exert that control if you're a 45 year old man with a 15 year old girl. Right. Because they actually have got those barriers and some of that learning and some of that safeguarding information some of that awareness that has been shared over the recent years has kind of taken root with them but they don't often see those early 20s into their 20s young males as exploiters right but actually they're still sometimes acting and it, it might be sometimes legitimate relationships but sometimes it is because they want to exploit them and, and get them to do something for them yeah and what would you say the ratio is male female i know it'll be both i imagine it'll be mainly more men but... yes yep so definitely more men um, 
we we do get occasional female perpetrators probably on a ratio of one in ten something okay. is a guess you know it, yeah. it might even be lower than that so what does good policing around it then look like because it's obviously difficult to police but as we saw in rotherham and what appears to have gone on in manchester is actually a, a slight sort of lack of urgency around dealing with the problem if I'm going to be frank, it might be tricky for you to comment on. Um, but I'd be interested to know then down in Hampshire, what good looks like to make sure that victims are being listened to. And they're not being told necessarily that, well, you shouldn't have taken that vodka off, Mr. Whoever, and quite frankly, pull your socks up and yeah. get on with it. No, I think you're right to reflect back on where we've come from. And we often try to learn from those experiences. And the world and policing and communities were different 15, 20 years ago than they are now. It's great that those victims can come forwards now and tell us what's happened because it helps us learn for the future. And that has supported cases going forwards. So that's great. Where we are now is that there is um, so there's a national action plan around CSE 2014, I think, that was then embedded locally within Safeguarding Children's Partnerships. And CSE being... Child Sexual Exploitation. Right, okay. Those plans were then embedded probably on the back of the main kind of Rotherham reports at about that time. From there, we built mechanisms, including specifically within Hampshire, to assess the risk. So share information across partnerships, assess the risk level in relation to children and the likelihood of them being exploited. Uh, assess perpetrators within the community and what we need to do in order to manage that risk and then set a plan around that child going forwards managing risk factors like missing episodes for example monitoring that going forwards and then looking out for the next child because it's a constant you know mm. children grow up um they they kind of change their behavior they accept the risks and change and 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 maybe focus their attention elsewhere maybe the exploiter moves, moves on to another child so it's a constant evolving picture mm. and uh, at the core, at the center center of all of that is the sharing information across the agencies in order to properly understand that risk and provide those investigative channels to support the young person if they want to to speak to professionals about what's happened and that might be a foster carer which we often find it's that other person in their life that might be the person they feel confident speaking to. It might be the parent, it might be the social worker, it might be a PCSO. Um, and then we kind of build on that from there and then kind of hunt down the perpetrator to, to bring them to justice. So it sounds incredibly complicated. Roughly what percent would you say happens within the family sphere? Because that must be so hard. The frustration from a professional's perspective, a police perspective, in order to extract themselves from a difficult home situation, a gang environment, um, appears that maybe exploit them with alongside a an overarching kind of exploitative gang. It, you know, they need to make the choice in order to pull themselves out of that. And it might be small steps at a time. It might be that... For example, a case whereby a young person starts that disclosure, which is police term for talking about bad stuff that's gone in their, on in their life. They start talking yeah. to that foster carer. The foster carer builds their trust and then shares that information with the social care. At that point, we have strategy discussions across the professional network and we set out a plan to support the young person. Um, and then it takes, it, and this is a challenge for the criminal justice system because it's not a linear process. It's not kind of the usual, a bad thing happens. You go to the police, you tell them about it. The police then take a report off you and then go and arrest the person and take them to court. It takes a long time to build that trust and confidence of the young person to speak to you. 
ultimately there's never any promise of an outcome for it as well because right. it's really complicated it's really difficult to get the perpetrator into court and that's if you manage to identify them because they may well be hidden within a, a complex social yeah, media and if that's a person who's also then sort of saying if you speak i'll kill you well, what are you going to do? Yeah, so there's keep, keeping them safe, threats against the young person, threats against maybe their network. There's legal obligations in relation to the support for the young person. So we call them intermediaries, which is whereby we have to provide a professional assessment. Or we, we don't provide it, but a, an, an intermediary, a third party, provides a professional assessment of the young person about their needs and how they might be supported through the criminal justice so system. So that's a healthcare professional, is it? Or a a... Child, they come from a variety of background and they're registered with the Home Office, a child psychologist type, okay. predominantly that kind of background. Yeah. Um, they're a fantastic resource to help the young person in, in kind of presenting their evidence to the police and helping us move that through to the court system. And then trying to understand what they've been involved in, how they've lived their life, maybe for the last week, month, or maybe the last couple of years even, so that we can identify those opportunities to identify the perpetrators in that, that world of that young person. Recently, we had an investigation in one part of Hampshire. And to follow that life of a young person, based on their account they provide to us, to try and identify the exploiters and the, um, the criminal acts that have been undertaken against the child. Was that a young girl or a young boy? It was a group of young girls. Right. It involves an, an awful amount of work, a lot of what we would call police action. So we would raise lots of inquiries, literally hundreds into the thousands of lines of inquiry that we would pursue in order to try and identify the perpetrators. Um, and along the way, we touch other parts of that young person's life as well. So it might well be that ultimately it's getting to the devious perpetrator at the top of the tree is really difficult. But actually, we're going to talk, we're going to touch other parts of their life along the way in which that we don't want to unnecessarily criminalize the young person. We might have to make decisions about one young person taking another one to a party and whether or not actually they're involved in the exploitation of one of their peers. So it's massively complicated. Wow those girls had they called you the police to say help there's something going on so the initial contact uh, in this case is as as i've kind of broadly suggested is around um through their foster carer and through okay. their through their support network they around were worried. them yeah so right. it's it's those it's having that trust to speak to somebody about what's happened so good and success doesn't necessarily look like an arrest and a prosecution when do you go home going yeah great we had a really good day because <laughs> this happened or that happened what does good look like well you? the most important thing is the safety of the child so keeping them safe providing them with an opportunity to engage with social care and criminal justice the police uh, and provide them with that opportunity to capture what their experiences are and then we can continue trying to hunt down and identify those perpetrators for the next week, the months, years even. And actually, the victim could come back to us in a few years' time and say, actually, I've remembered something else now. Right. Or I've found that phone that I've been missing. Yeah. And, and that might be the last bit that helps us then identify. Right. But isn't it often the most risky time, I imagine, for a child to come forward and be brave enough to do that. And often it's like, yes, I've made that step. I know it's the right one. I'm now a lot less safe because if these people find out, you it, know. It is, definitely. I think from a trauma perspective, and I, I think a, a child psychologist, social care, we're always trying to encourage the child to speak to a professional about what's gone on in order to help them manage that forwards. There is a process and 
police and cops are very good at having a, a process and an a, ABC of what we want to achieve. But actually, it might well be that we need to focus on that first part and engaging with the young person, getting them to provide their account. And that then allows maybe some kind of therapeutic support around that. Maybe it provides them an opportunity to think about what their next foster placement might look like and build that kind of plan around them to keep them safe going forwards. And we have seen that, particularly with these children that I'm talking about where we were able to reflect back on those missing episodes and their level of engagement with criminal justice and social care prior to coming to the foster care and telling them what's happened. Look at their involvement with us as a victim, which is often the case as a as a, an offender themselves, so like shoplifting, drug crime, other low-level crime, and then reflect on that now after they've made those disclosures and after we've kind of gone through that investigative process and see the change in it. So see those that massive drop in the number of missing episodes, see them engaging with their foster carer now much better, maybe see their engagement with education go up, their attendance at school improve. So all of those things are really positive and really you know heartwarming when you yeah. see that change. And you mentioned the trauma, which I think is obviously a big topic and how would you say that your team where are they on the kind of understanding trauma now and the behavior that people exhibit as often you know as a result of their early childhood traumas so my team are are very well experienced because they're speaking to young children all the time they're going out they're understanding what their experiences are and they're talking to social care they they see the journey of the child um and so they've, they've got a good grip about what what may be previous trauma that is now playing out in the behaviour of the young person and actually how the the traumatic episode of being involved as a victim, we can help manage that going forwards by their engagement with us now. The next step is about taking that team-specific learning and putting that out across the organisation. So it's not my team that respond every time to a missing episode with a child. There's a couple of thousand police officers, police staff, there's call takers. It's a whole raft of the team that is behind the response to an event. So when a child returns from a missing episode, we need to make sure that that officer attending in the very first instance also has that same awareness and is able to spot those initial flags, maybe signpost the right support for the child, even record things in a way that actually might share information with other professionals about maybe domestic abuse within the family, the type of environment the child's living in, how that kind of whole lived experience of the child might be playing out in relation to the missing episode that is they're just responding to now. Right. And then also the trauma maybe of what staff witness. You know, this stuff is really horrific, isn't it? And, you know, you're living it day in, day out, and I'm sure you think about it after work and before work. So is there also a nod to how officers keep themselves kind of robust yeah. and yes definitely so that is a real strength around a team so the team gets strength off of each other um they have you know shared understanding they have good experience that they're able to share they're able to kind of um debrief talk to each other about how things have gone uh, share frustrations or successes my team specifically have annual assessment by a psychologist to make sure that they are getting the right level of support for the trauma that they're experiencing within the workplace or if there's any red flags around any concerning behavior lack of exercise too much alcohol consumption those kind of things that might be as i say red flags for the organization to think about what support they might need to provide okay. um, and that so that's bespoke to my team at the moment because of the high trauma environment we operate in but hampshire police is rolling that that out across the whole of the organization yeah and you're gonna be a trauma-informed county is that right or is it a trauma-informed police force 
within uh, the county of Hampshire? Well, I, I think it probably is both. So Hampshire police are catching up in relation to understanding trauma-informed policing uh, from the start of the call to the police through to the initial response, through to the the, the, the court process, managing the staff well-being, the whole journey of uh, the public's engagement with the police. But that goes across the county as well. So we work hand in hand with all of our partners, whether it be third sector, Bernardo's or other, other charities, whether it be professionals like social care, prison service. We've got a, a large prison population in Hampshire, probation with all of our MAPA obligations. So it cuts across all of that, really. And actually, if we're able to have those conversations and put things into that frame of mind, we can all around the table as a partnership think of a problem from that perspective. Absolutely. And and obviously, there's sort of great cultural benefits that sort of go with that. And if there was maybe one day a shared culture across all these different segments of the criminal justice system, that would be a really great thing. But just to skip back to the misunderstanding sometimes of the trauma that's happened in people's childhoods to then their behaviour later on in life, I think always a good example is when children have been over-sexualised and abused, sexually abused as children, and then often they then become very over-sexualised. So they're sort of flirting a lot and there's a lot of a misunderstanding around that, isn't there, that when children are subject to sexual abuse, that often that can be a behaviour that comes out that's then misunderstood. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It probably, and your example, I, I would probably go more basic than that. Actually, it's around, it's more challenging, or the conversations that are the most challenging at the moment is around the criminal behaviour of young people and how that is maybe learnt behaviour because of domestic abuse in the home that makes them violent at school. It might be because of the learnt behaviour around um, shoplifting and stealing property that might be, again, from that, come from the home environment it might be extreme as you say that it might be sexual abuse within the home that then plays out as inappropriate sexual behavior within the school environment as well so it can be any one of those um, and the challenge is always around those conversations with partners and police officers about when is a young person actually got to be dealt with as a perpetrator and when actually do we need to consider that they're they're a victim within this although their behavior plays out as an offender yeah because I think, again, that's something that's difficult for people to understand when they're not immersed in it, that the victim and the perpetrator are often the same person. Yeah, we're trying. And at the moment, we're just um, we're just running scrutiny around our youth community resolutions, which is an on the street resolution that low level of resolution that doesn't actually involve, doesn't give the young person a uh, criminal justice outcome so there's no record from a police national you know, conviction perspective and we're just looking at whether or not we can get ahead of that in relation to some kind of triage before it to offer some interventions and alternatives so before they even get into having one of those youth community resolutions to look at whether there's any diversion that we can give to them to an intervention service so right. that works going on with youth offending at the moment so how's the trauma-informed training program that you're talking about helped you personally and maybe you as a force on your team so for me the headline around trauma-informed is around capturing the information so looking that bit further turning those stones over as i said investigating to safeguard and then recording that in a way that then can be shared by professional teams to assess the risk level. So that's the key part. And also just 
putting a slightly different lens on on what's in front of you thinking about what I'm dealing with here is it because of other influences other factors that have caused trauma within that world of that young person and therefore that's playing out now in their behavior and I need to take that into consideration right and do you think about how the police could be accidentally re-traumatising people, because, of course, none of us try and re-traumatise people, but either being arrested, going to court, going into prison. Often, you know, people say to me, well, you know, it's, she just came into prison. She didn't really have any other problems. And it's like, yeah, you often. know, that's quite traumatising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, often. And, and particularly around domestic abuse, I think it's a challenge because once we walk away from a home, we don't know what happens behind that closed door so in the worst case scenario the police attend they deal with the domestic abuse incident they rightly take positive action against the normally male perpetrator in this case for this this example we take the male perpetrator away and we leave the mum at home with the young child and we close the door and you kind of think what does that tell how does that play out in the mind of the child or the partner and what does that mean going forwards Mm. Um, and it doesn't take much but I think we just sometimes a few steps along the road to explaining why something's happened and what's going to happen next will help just alleviate some of that trauma and provide them with that understanding we we do as do most parts of the country operate operate Operation Encompass, which is sharing information following domestic abuse incidents with schools so that a school can be aware of what's happened in a child's life within 24 hours of a domestic abuse incident. But it's then putting some kind of support around that child afterwards. So not just sharing it with the school, but asking them to think about how does that child then behave at school the next day? Is there some level of therapeutic support or engagement or just even a conversation that needs to be had with them about how they feel about what's happened and what can somebody do to help? So where do you sit on school exclusions? Because, you know, being a mother with three small children in school, if there is a difficult child who then you sort of think, well, my child is, you know, not doing so well at school or being disrupted because of this child and then other parents are complaining about that child and it's certainly getting to the point where it's looking like the only option is to actually say, I'm really sorry, but we cannot put up with this behaviour any longer. We don't have the resources as a school to deal with this child. What's the interface with the police there? What, What are your difficulties from that? Because, of course, if they have acted in a criminal sense, maybe they were drug dealing at school, for example. Quite rightly, the other parents would be like, I'm afraid. Come on, you know, you've got to deal with this. And then it becomes a policing problem. So from my perspective, I think that the the strongest response would be to put uh, intervention plans and diversion plans around that young person to make allow them to make different choices in relation to their criminal activity. So that is explaining to them the difficulty around the choices they're making at the moment and then support them around that and the best way to do that is to keep them within that school environment and to build systems around daily engagement with them with the right professionals to help them make those right choices for me if you discharge them from that environment for how whether that be a short-term or a long-term process or you you move them to another environment you lose that information about the child that you've learned so far the, the picture changes around them Um, They probably feel less connected wherever they end up, whether that be short-term exclusion or in another education environment. And the chances of changing their perspective on the risks that they're facing, um, you start again. So actually, you're much better off building on the picture that you currently have and putting mechanisms around them to support them in that educational environment they're currently in. That, for me, doesn't involve excluding them from it. 
Right. Because um, often what I hear with people who've talked to us on the podcast, who've had very difficult upbringings, sometimes they will say, school was my sanctuary. And it doesn't mean to say that they behaved like angels in that school, but compared to their home life, their school was their sort of one and only safety net. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's just such a difficult area really, isn't it? Yeah, I think probably, um, I'm not sure I'm clear on the picture around the risk. So I'm not sure, and I sit on Safeguarding Children's Partnership Board meetings, and I'm not sure that I'm always, or as a partnership, we're always cited on that behaviour that involves in the exclusion of a young person and the detail of what it is, particularly whether it, it, it involves drugs or alcohol or bringing something into school they shouldn't do. Sometimes that isn't as clear as we'd like it to be. And actually, for me, you know, you could argue some of that behaviour is in order to remove themselves from education. So actually, by excluding them, you're kind of meeting the wishes of the child or maybe even the wishes of an exploiter that might be pulling the strings right. outside of that environment. The best thing you can do is keep them in that environment. And I appreciate there's financial constraints and staffing constraints and risk to other children that need to be kind of played out in all of that. But actually... Putting resources into that seems like a more sensible thing to do than to allow them to be outside of that education environment and then chase that safeguarding around them when you're not cited on where they are and who they're being engaged with. But I guess a lot also comes down to the leadership, right? Because I imagine some heads would be like, great, I want to talk to you about it, right, Nick, come on, tell me everything. Um, I need to be able to disseminate this information down through my staff teams. And certainly there'll be some heads who are like, no not interested in their home life or, you know, hopefully there's not too many heads out there like that. But do you, you know, maybe it is an education and awareness thing, even for heads. Yeah, we like consistency in policing. So that is a challenge for us because with over 800 schools, I think in Hampshire, um, all those head teachers all trying to do the right thing by their children in their school, but against a national footprint from the Department for Education and all that guidance that comes down to them. Sometimes that voice from policing or maybe even social care, I think it's it's not always as influential as we would like it to be. But actually, at the centre of all of that, they always want to do the best by their children, of mm. course. So how do you, I mean, it's really quite a depressing topic, let's be honest. How do you keep yourself upbeat and how do you sort of push work to one side you know because I'm you have to be able to do that in order to be able to survive in a job like this so I strangely talk to my family my children are really interested in in kind of without going into specifics of cases but they're always interested in in what especially when they see things on the news so it's not even Hampshire specific but it might be something an event that's happening in another part of the country and what's our perspective on that and why don't either professionals government police uh, the public treat things differently so there that that's quite a good way of diffusing as for a lot of police officers exercise uh, keeping fit uh, running around after children all those kind of yeah exactly <laughs> children are a great distraction <laughs> distractions <laughs> And if there was one small thing you could change, let's just say within your team or one small thing you might need as a team that would make a sort of huge difference, is there anything that comes to mind? I think it would be providing a, a trusted avenue for children to speak to somebody, whether that be a peer, a professional or a family member in a way that they can share information without feeling that they're kind of disregarding or disrespecting those kind of childhood ethics that they have around not grassing up friends not grassing up around 
uh, people at risk or, or um, people that are doing things wrong and actually getting young people to talk to us about stuff going on in their life I think is probably the, the big thing because ultimately they have the answers whether it be around the risk that they're facing at the moment or the methods of resolving that and sorting that out um, so they often have a, a view about the, the, the first steps that should be taken. But opening that door and providing that method of communication is the key to it. And often it's it's kind of takes a while, like that foster carer conversation, it takes a while for that child to get the confidence to start that conversation. And that's the bit I think is the, the real opportunity. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is co-produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company and Pencil Agency. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.